the Evolved Succeed podcast where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders and experts are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. We will also investigate and establish the need for ongoing personal development, accountability and support. The objective is to inspire you, the audience, to be better in life and in business. Welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My guest this week is Richard Carr, a serial entrepreneur who, from his early 20s, has been doing things very much his own way. He has run multi-million pound companies in a variety of sectors from leisure and nightlife to commercial and residential property development, and he is currently founder and chief executive of Fortitudo Property Developers in Paul. For some of you listening to this podcast, Richard will need no introduction. He has certainly led a colourful and at times controversial life, one that has often played out in public, especially here in Poole and Bournemouth. He has won and lost on a grand scale, been exited from the business he publicly floated, arrested and acquitted on a number of lengthy charges, and yet through all of this he has remained resolute and single-minded. This has no doubt made him the divisive and perhaps misunderstood character that he is. I've never spent any great deal of time in Richard's company and I didn't know him personally and it was for this reason that I wanted to get the truth behind the story and I wanted to sit down with Richard to hear his story, to get his perspective on the things that he may or may not have done, the things that may or may not have happened to him and also get a greater understanding of Richard and find out what he's learned from his personal and professional journeys. In the end, it's riveting listening and no matter how you feel about Richard, There are some valuable insights here about the highs and the lows, as well as all the pleasures, pressures and pitfalls of grand success. Amongst other things in this podcast, Richard talks about the pitfalls of floating your company. They become so engulfed in dealing with the city and with analysts and with corporate finance and spending time just talking to people that they lose their focus on the business. Reveals the details of his 2012 arrest. Well, they came to the front door of my house at 7 o'clock in the morning. They came to Jim Beedham, who was my uh, sort of a guy I was doing work with uh, at that time. They went to Paula, my ex-wife's house. Um, to everyone that I had a, a business involvement with, got arrested all in one go. And thinks about what keeps him going after all the successes and setbacks. I just can't sit back. I can't. i just one of these people that... I have to be busy and I have to be moving things forward. If you want to know more about Evolve, then please do go to evolvemembers.com. But for now, let's get on with the show. Hello, Richard. Welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Hi, Warren. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad at all. Thank you, Richard. You started your first business in your 20s, I understand. Yeah, that's right. So I thought we would go all the way back to that time and, wow. <laughs> and just to understand a little bit about why did you start the business in the 20s with your family and parents from a business well, background? Well, I came, I came from a, a background of hoteliers. Uh, my grandfather moved here in the late 40s after the end of the Second World War and owned uh, the Royal Exeter Hotel in Bournemouth uh, where I lived up until when I was seven. There was then a bit of a family breakdown and... Uh, my father went one way, my father's brother went one way, and my grandfather went his own way. Okay. Um, and uh, so I was brought up in uh, in uh, in the sphere of hoteliers, 
albeit okay. I was sent to boarding school at seven years old. And um, my father always thought that I should carry on in his footsteps of being a hotelier. Okay. Um, I had no interest in that whatsoever at right. the time and uh, didn't really like the hotel business. So, but you sort of got into the family business for a while, did you? Yeah, I, I, I did work for in the family business for a short while. I got fired by my mother, actually. Okay. Uh, just an experience, when I, when I uncovered sure. When I uncovered that the chef was fiddling and um, her view was that... Um, probably accepting a little bit of fiddling was was uh, more beneficial than losing the chef. Right. So so um, I uh, we didn't fall out over that, and I, I cracked on, did other things. And um, I, I was very intrigued by fast food, and um, fast food was the big thing in the catering mm. world at the time. And, uh, you know, I was reading all the books about fast food. Uh, I, I read about Ray Kroc well before the recent film was made, uh, who was the founder of McDonald's. Yeah. And um, I persuaded my parents to uh, let me buy the Golden Egg in Bournemouth Square, which okay. was a, a, a defunct franchise. I rebranded it Hamby House, and really my fast food journey carried on from that point. Um, and... Uh, you know, my parents uh, nobbled me for pretty high interest on that loan. And um, I continued and built and changed the name from uh, Golden Egg to Hamby House. Uh, I cribbed Wimpy International's logo to a degree, I suppose. <laughs> and one day, uh, this guy walks in, a, a very sort of imposing character, and uh, sits down and orders a cup of tea and says to the waitress, who owns this establishment? And she said, uh, well, I can go and get him for it if you want. So she went down to the office and got me. And uh, I suppose I was 21, 22 at the time. And um, I sat down with him and I, his name was Ian Petrie. And um, he was part of the McVitie's family. Okay. Uh, so because United Biscuits owned Wimpy International, or bought Wimpy International from Lyons. And um, I sat down with him and he said, you're infringing my copyright. And I went, yeah, well, what do you mean? He said, well, your logo outside the restaurant is very, very similar to Wimpy International's logo. He said, but, he said, I'm not going to sue you. He said, you're an Anglo-Saxon and you're exactly the sort of person I want as, a, as my new franchisees. So as long as you take that fascia down and you convert this restaurant into a, new counter-service Wimpy restaurant, which was similar to what McDonald's would do. Yeah. We won't take action against you. So I said, well, that's really nice to meet you. Gave me his business card. We finished our cup of tea. And uh, off he went and off I thought about things. And um, a few weeks later, I, I rang him up and I said to him, I said, well, it was really nice to meet you. I'd like to come up to your office and have a chat with you. So he said to me, uh, well, what do you want to have a chat about? I said, I want to have a chat about becoming involved with Wimpy International and becoming a franchisee. And uh, he said, well, that's, that's exactly the spirit of, of, of how we left things. So, yes, come on up and I'll buy you some lunch. So we went off to lunch and I sat down with him and um, I got on with him brilliantly. Um, so much so that I used to take his daughter out for dinner. Right. And um, we, we all sort of became quite good friends. And... Um, I said to him, look in, I'm not prepared to take my hoarding down. 
at this stage. I said, but I am prepared to come into the Wimpy family. And if everything works out, we can then take the hoarding down and um, sign, the, the signage down and we can convert the restaurant into a Wimpy restaurant. As Richard and I got into our conversation, we went into some considerable detail about his early entrepreneurial journey. Overall, our conversation turned out to be over an hour and a half in total. So to shorten the length of this podcast a little and get on to some more recent events and lessons that Richard has learned, I decided just to summarise this stage and this part of Richard's entrepreneurial career and journey. Through a number of clever deals and manoeuvres and building some meaningful relationships, Richard went on to become the largest franchisee of Wimpy International. This laid the foundations for him to expand into the restaurant and leisure industry and he ended up buying several restaurants in London and throughout the country. He then established Allied Restaurants, later renamed Allied Leisure, which Richard first attempted to float on the unlisted securities market on the 21st of December 1987. And for those of you that will remember, this turned out, of course, to be Black Monday. As a result, the float was aborted, but he did proceed with the float and it successfully floated two months later, although at a slight discount per share. This is where we pick up the journey again with Richard. But you continued to pursue that option. I didn't have any choice. And I'll tell you why I didn't have any choice. Is that because we were going to float the business and it was all so definite. Yeah. We had taken, you know, a lot of corporate decisions of what we were going to yeah. do. And so we really had to do it. Um, it would have been difficult to reverse it. Okay. Particularly as there was uncertainty in the market at, at that time. Um, obviously. So we floated the business and um, strangely, because I think everyone at UB, United Biscuits and at Wimpy International had thought that I would continue going down the fast food route. Yeah. Because I was the most pioneering franchisee that there was. Yeah. I was sort of the most outspoken franchisee there was. In a very strange sort of way, the executives of Wimpy International had sort of taken on board my, what I said. Your was operational exactly ideas. Because, yeah. because we had managed to create and change the sort of mindset of Wimpy so much, uh, a lot of them thought that what would happen is that as soon as we floated, we would then try and reverse ourselves into buying Wimpy International from okay. United Biscuits. And this is possibly... If I look back in hindsight, one of my big mistakes, okay. because I had got disillusioned with fast food. Um, I'd got disillusioned with Wimpy. There were a lot of executives there that I found very hard work. Um, the fact that we'd floated the business, there was a little bit of green-eyed envy yeah. with certain people. And I all of a sudden got a letter from Wimpy saying that the business was going to be sold to Grand Metropolitan. And um, Alan Shepherd, who was the chairman and chief executive of Grand Metropolitan, I met at a garden party at Kensington Palace because um, I was involved in the Prince's Business Youth Trust. Oh, okay. And so it was a garden party for Prince Charles and, and Diana were there at the time. And 
Alan Shepard was there and I walked over to him and I said, we don't know each other, but my name's Richard Carr. I'm the largest franchisee of Wimpy International and I understand you're buying the business. And he said, well, you're very well informed. Um, I said, well, we've had a letter. And he said, well, why don't you come and have breakfast with me tomorrow morning and we'll discuss things. So probably... If I hadn't have become disillusioned with fast food and wanted to take allied restaurants into allied leisure, yeah. I probably would have ended up owning the whole of the Wimpy brand. And I think Sir Hector Lang, uh, who was the chairman of UB, who I used to have lunch with regularly, I think he, in his own way, was grooming me to do the to reverse do takeover. Tra- to do that precise transaction. Yeah, but I, I'd lost interest in fast food. I found it's an incredibly tough business. Yeah. And I had these aspirations of going off into into leisure. And I think they'd probably become thoroughly disillusioned with me without me realising. Yeah. They never approached me and said, look, Richard, you know, this is a massive opportunity for you. So do you think that's because of you became distracted, just lost your passion? Think in a, in I'll a tell you what it was. Kind of, yeah. Do you know what, what I think it was? And and you, you hear this a lot with people that float their companies, is they become so engulfed in dealing with the city mm. and with analysts and with corporate finance and spending time just talking to people that they lose their focus on the business. Mm. And I think I'd become so engulfed in dealing with analysts, dealing with the flotation, dealing with the problems that the flotation didn't happen. At the same time, Grand Met bought Burger King globally. Grand Met, uh, Burger King's presence in the UK was really poor. Grand Met's only way of getting a presence in the UK was to buy Wimpy International. Right, and actually acquire their footprint. Acquiring the footprint of the counter service stores but I took, I, I, I'd lost complete focus of that whole thing. Yeah. And I had breakfast that next morning with Shepherd, and he said, I'll buy your restaurants. And um, I was sort of like, yeah, great. And so I named my price and um, I was scurried back to Grand Metch Bolton's head office, put, put, sat in a room with this guy and we did the deal to 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 sell sell the restaurants to Burger King, right. Stroke Grand Met. And from this is an interesting point from the city's perspective, this was just amazing. Yeah, because you know we had all of a sudden were sort of seen as a you know a franchisee of a of a big brand, and yeah, it's not really exciting. Yeah, and the share price was at the time. 55 58p you know it, it it had a premium to to what we floated at but it was never where it should be and all of a sudden wow this business is transformed mass summer cash in we rebranded the business from allied restaurants to allied leisure okay we went from the usm to a main listing and all of a sudden you know the share price went junk and um you know, within no time at all. I mean, we we started in Tempin Bowling, and with no time at all, the share price was at one fifteen, one eighteen. So it effectively doubled, plus. So you know, we were seen as 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 you know fairly, yeah, fairly good at what we did, and I think we were, and um, we started opening up 
you know, we Tower Park was one of the first edge of town leisure parks that Bill Riddle was obviously the developer effectively, but he had never had in his ambition there to be a nightclub temp in bowling. Yeah. Yeah. There was going to be an ice rink and equestrian central water park. Yeah. And, you know, we, we said to him, don't be ridiculous. The equestrian centre is a waste of time. Let's put a temp... And, and that's where Mega Bowl was born. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we opened... Uh, you know, we took something like... Um, it's quite amazing when you look back at this. I mean, we took something like two and a half acres of space internally, internal space in, in, in Tower Park. I mean, I think the nightclub was something like 30-something thousand square feet. Well, that's yeah. three quarters of an acre. I think the bowl was 34,000 square feet. We then had the bar underneath Colonnade, which is about another yeah. 4,000 square feet. And plus, at the time, we took the Birking unit where the wimpy, it was going to be a wimpy. Uh, but then later, we went off to Birking. We, we let that go. So when you actually look at what we took and the risk, when I look back at that, I think to myself, oh, my God, what were you thinking? <laughs> so Imagine you... if it hadn't worked. Yeah. I mean, our fit-out costs, going back then, you know, this is 35 years ago, was something like four and a half, five million quid. Wow. Serious money. And I, I can often remember Duncan Moss, who was my finance director, phoning me up and saying, when's this all going to open, Richard? You know, quite <laughs> regularly. <laughs> Just cash. <laughs> and it opened and it was an amazing success, as, yeah. you, as, you, as everyone knows. And at the bowling centre is still successful today as a Hollywood Bowl. So we were really lucky. But it was a huge risk uh, at that time mm. because, you know, that was the first really big push into the leisure market that we that we had made with such a huge cash commitment. And then Allied Leisure went on from there. You yeah. know, we opened Tempin Bowling Centres um, as far north as Edinburgh, Glasgow, uh, Hull, Manchester... Um, we, we were nationwide yeah. Liverpool um, Newcastle and um, the business was you know it was incredibly successful I, mean, we, I think before I left I think we were employing nearly 3,000 people mm -hmm. in Allied Leisure I've still got the annual report in my drawer and um, it was you know an amazing success but as I think happens in a lot of companies as they move forward they're was some very silly mistakes and ideas that were put forward by the corporate finance advisors, which was Williams to Bro, that destroyed yeah. really my love and passion and created a corporate monster. Yeah. And that was, the first thing was, I, I don't remember when uh, Azil Nadir and Polypec came along, he was chairman and chief executive, and there were various other chairmen and chief executives and companies that had gone wrong. And there was a thing called the Cabries Report came yeah. out. And um, William Sabreau said uh, at a meeting, I always remember being sat there, Richard, you're going to have to split your roles. You're chairman and chief executive. And I looked at them and said, well, what do you mean? Why? Why are we going to have to do that? Everything's going fine. Yeah. No, no, it's the right corporate responsibility thing to do. And um, that was really the start of the end of, okay. of Allied Leisure with me because um, we then went out on a beauty parade to split my roles. Another mistake I made, instead of taking the chairmanship, executive chairmanships, I decided I'd stay on as chief executive and bring in a non-executive chairman. And um, 
we went out and we spoke and we met various people and we met this guy uh, who used to be head of the English Tourist Board. And uh, I had lunch with him and dinner with him and he seemed like a really great guy. And I thought, well, I can work with this guy. He's, you know, fairly easygoing. He's going to be a non-executive. Anyway, he started off and I always, always remember the first board meeting. He sat at the top of the table. I sat to the right of him. And um, he started to say things at the end of the meeting. I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. That's not a non-executive chairman's right. position to say that's a hands-on that. executive exactly type. so uh, after the meeting we had a meeting and um after the board meeting and i said i said bill i said bill you are aware of the difference between being an executive and a non-executive chairman and he said well why are you saying that i said well a lot of the things that you were saying in that board meeting really to me didn't fit well with me and he said oh right okay and then after he'd gone, um, he'd left my PA um, a package. And in the package was his expenses. And uh, <laughs> I looked at his expenses and I thought, oh, my God. So I had to ring him up the next day. And I said, look, Bill, I said, having lunch in the city with so-and-so and so-and-so isn't part of your remit with me. It's not within your, your what we agreed and um, we, uh, from that day on, we effectively locked horns. Right. And then um, in the early 90s, as we all know, the, the recession was yeah. creeping Hit in. hard, didn't it? Yeah. Cash, cash was tight. I'd agreed a merger with a company called European Leisure, um, which, strangely enough, uh, the, the chief executive of that company ended up in jail for fraud. And um, I'd agreed a merger with them. Uh, they had a lot of cash on their balance sheet. And I always remember the, the, the last board meeting I went to at Allied Leisure was I proposed that we merge with European Leisure. They own nightclubs and bars. They weren't involved in, in bowling, but they owned a lot of freehold property, a lot of nightclubs, a lot of bars all over the country. And um, Williams de Bro were on my side, her corporate finance advisors. And um, I remember the, the non-executives plus Bill got together and said this isn't the time for us to be merging and I went why and they went well it's just not I said but we're going to run out of cash if, if this downturn continues yeah. we will run out of cash if we merge with European Leisure we've got this huge effectively bolster of cash plus we inherit all these businesses which I think we can add value to and, and, and do you know what if I was to look back now and, to, and say to you, what do I honestly think about that day? That whole thing was not about business. It was about him and the non-executives trying to assert their authority on me yeah. as a very strong personality. And that was the end of the business. Yeah. And, uh, and that's that when I said... an acrimonious split, didn't it? Well, I threw, my, I threw the towel in and um, they then did a revaluation on the business. And that's why... You know, there was that huge, I think it was a £16 million loss that year because mm. everything had been downvalued. And, of course, I was made to look the, 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 the bad guy. But that's corporate life. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, we ended, uh, that was the end of that era. Yeah. Um, so you talk about it and you, you obviously talk about it and you would never take a business public again, I see. Well, it's an interesting one, you should say that, because I, 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 I was having a conversation with someone about this business the other day, and they said, well, what, what's your 
what's your goal for it? And I said, well, interestingly, it just shows you how business has changed so much in my business career. There probably isn't a need now to take this business public because there are so many different routes to get capital. When it's, if you went back to that era, yeah. it was completely different. It was bank loan or exactly. equity or, was exactly. listing. Or... So, the, so the world's a different place. But I don't know whether I will, would consider it, but it is something that is in my mind, in the back of my mind. If, 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 if we could get Fortitudo to producing you know, sensible profits, mm. which obviously we are on the way to doing, there is that option. But is it necessary and do I want that hassle? I don't know. Yeah. Because, you know, we're just doing a deal at the moment with, with, with uh, effectively a hedge fund, which will give us a, 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 facil- a revolving fund facility of a very substantial sum of money. And therefore, probably we don't need to do that. But in those days, it was a, it was it a different was the world. only kind of option. Yeah. Exactly. But fundamentally, how did it feel to be effectively you're exited out of your own business? You know, early 20s, you start the business, you grow it, you grow it. I was about 20, so it was about 92, 93 that happened. So I always remember going to the final meeting of where everything was signed off. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I walked out of there. And I remember walking down the street in London and just thinking, wow. Mm -hmm. You know. How did that happen? How did that happen? You know, why, why? But, you know, I look back now, and as I said to you, you know, when I look back, you know, I made some fundamental mistakes. I should never have split my roles. And if I did, I should have stayed as chairman. Yeah. As executive chairman. That would fit with your pinnacle piece, from the, yeah. being the pinnacle. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, at the time, and, and funny enough, I used to have a guy who used to work for me called David Lloyd-Williams. And... um he was, I, I always considered him as my sort of grey hair. Yeah. And he used to come into my office at uh, Allied Leisure when it was at Tower Park. And he always used to say to me, morning chairman. And when I look back, I think, was he actually trying to tell me something? Because it was at the time when I was about to split my roles. Yeah. And he'd worked for, you know, he was a lot older than me. And um, he'd worked for a lot of, lot of uh, entrepreneurs in his life worked in the supermarket industry in the 60s and things like that and um, I think the truth is that what he was trying to say to me was don't if you split your roles stay as chairman yeah what's done's done yeah move on because you know as entrepreneurial characters we like control don't we yes fundamentally that's usually one of the drivers behind why we start well, I think business. I think I think that uh, entrepreneurs generally successful entrepreneurs it's interesting isn't it if you look at uh, there's this theory about the amount of dyslexic people mm. who have been successful entrepreneurs. Yeah. Formal well, education doesn't lead to necessarily success exactly. in business. And I, 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 I'm dyslexic and went to dyslexic school. And um, I think that, that entrepreneurial people are pretty narcissistic as well, generally, if the truth be known. And um, I think that that's what makes an entrepreneur is that we are actually control freaks. Yeah. 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 And that's been a, a sign or a, something that's been in all of your businesses since? We've talked about that pivotal role. Yeah, because I, I believe... Is that the big lesson learned out of the PLC was when you were going to run another business? And when you well, were... I, think, I think that, that, that 
I always remember walking across um, one of the bridges in London with one of the fund managers. Schroders were a, a very large uh, shareholder in Allied. And um, at the time when I was in my roles, I was talking to one of them. I can't remember his name now. Uh, we were off to a, a meeting with, a, with an analyst and um, he was coming along. And uh, he said to me, why do you want to do that? He, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you've built this business all on your own. Mm. Why on earth do you want to do what they're telling you to do? And, you know, when you're younger, you saw that probably went in one ear and out the other. Today, that would obviously resonate with me mm. quite substantially. Um, and uh, when you think about it, when you look back, he was right. Mm. He's saying, you know, why, why, you know, that, that old saying is don't fix something if it's not broken. And um, I think that, uh, you know, that's probably true. But sometimes it's also about ambition and growth, isn't it? And if there's a hunger in your belly and a drive to grow and succeed and maybe become more wealthier or whatever your definition of success is, then it was a natural path for you to go, as we've talked about, because it was primarily the only route of funding to go list and Well, I think part of, the, part of the problem is, is the, the board of, of, of Allied had become too big. And uh, when I started introducing uh, non-executive directors onto the board, again, under pressure from Williams yeah. de Bro, um, you know, I had a guy called William Blythe, who was the ex-finance director, funny enough, of, of United Biscuits. And sort of the connection was through the wimpy thing. That, that, but, you know, at the time when I, when I announced or the company announced that William Blythe, ex-finance, ex-main board director yeah. of UB, was coming to be a non-executive director of, of Allied Restaurants, probably at that time, or Ad Leisure. You know, the share price probably ticked 5p up yeah. because it was seen as a big thing. This is good and, governance. But, and, but yeah. quite regularly, you would do these things, which were just driven by share price. But from my point of view, if I was to actually sit back now and think, actually, that wasn't a smart move because he was a pain in the ass yeah. because he was a Dow Scott and, uh, you know, I remember taking him to, we opened a, um, a nightclub, a bowl and a feeder bar in Bedford. We, we had a company helicopter at the time and we, we flew up there. And when we were walking back from the car park to, to the club, he said to me, that's awfully excessive. I said, what, William? He said, coming up here in a helicopter. I said, well, it's a lot quicker than coming up by car. Anyway, we're walking around the club and he goes, is that necessary? Is that necessary? Well, he was just a, he was an old man, you know, really. <laughs> yeah. He's a Dow Scott. And like, I went, well, that's what the young really want now. Like, you know, he looked at a video wall and he went, well, would it, would it be any different if we didn't have that? How much did that cost? And see things <laughs> like that. You know, things like that. And, you know, like, he took the decisions because that's what Williams and Broke thought was a good yeah. thing. But, but you're not being driven by spirit at that I'd point. I'd be better off just there being three people on the board. Yeah, you weren't being driven by the spirit and that exactly. hunger and that drive. You're being driven by what's yeah. going to keep the city happy. Yeah. So clearly the exit happened. The natural thing and the natural transition for you then was to get back into clubs, bars and restaurants and the hospitality well, trade. I, I, Did you think about doing anything different? Well, when I towards the end of my tenure at Allied, I used to look at um, the management accounts at the end of the month and I used to think that one club's made sort of £170,000 this month because in those days, nightclubs were yeah. amazingly profitable. You know, used to be paying staff at 360 an hour, dormant at £5 an hour. Yeah. Um, 
to get in after 11 o'clock was eight quid. Yeah. Um, and so it was an amazingly profitable business. I mean, you take the venue at Tower Park, you know, I think that some years that was making in excess of one, one and a half million pound EBITDA. And I used to look at that and think, why do I need to have all this rubbish? I could just open one of those clubs yeah. or own a nightclub and earn four times the amount, five times the amount of money I'm earning now uh, on PAYE and not have any of this rubbish. And, and so when I left and after things settled down, I had a little period of time where I wasn't allowed to do anything, um, which is very frustrating. And um, then I took the Opera House, which was the obvious large capacity club in the Bournemouth and Poole conurbation. And um, we took it and it was a complete, I mean, it was a flop. And, you know, I remember for ages and ages when we first owned it, we couldn't get anyone in there. And I thought about how do we actually make this work? And, um, of course, dance music was the big thing at the time in, in the late 90s. I put together a team of guys and um, we rebranded the business from the Academy into the Opera House because when I took it from John Butterworth, it was called the Academy and started this youth culture brand called Slinky and um, managed to get a tie-up with the guy who run Mixmag magazine. So that gave us the, the way into getting all the talent. And then we booked all of these huge name DJs right. on Friday nights. And all of a sudden, the Opera House, through the Friday night... it had its niche, it had its identity, just, it had everything. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, you know, on the front pages of some of the uh, youth culture magazines, I mean, it was it was calling, uh, you know, the nightclub capital of the South. Bournemouth become the nightclub capital of the South over, over, over you know, a period of about 18 months because people would drive from Oxford to come to the Opera House on a Friday night because of the talent that we had and the way that we got the sound system and the way everything was running. And it, it was an amazing success. You know, we had uh, some DJs in there, you know, that we'd have 2,700, 3,000 people through the door on a Friday night at £30 a head. I mean, like, that was, you know, a significant, significant, you know, uh, sum of money. And... Um, you know, the bars, obviously, because of the way that that sort of culture works, the bars didn't sell an awful lot of alcohol, but they sold an awful lot of water. And, you know, we were importing or, or buying from uh, French water factories, pantechnicans of bottled water. You know, we did. And it was an amazingly successful business. And because of the Friday night, the Thursday night, which was the student night, yeah. was amazingly successful because everyone wanted to be to be in the opera it was the venue to be at and the Saturday night was an amazing success and 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 from that success there the Slinky brand became a global phenomenon I mean we were selling the Slinky brand name to uh, clubs in Australia New Zealand Japan New York um, Singapore on a weekly basis we were selling you know some weeks we'd sell six or seven nights where a club operator in, let's say, Japan would want to use the Slinky brand, but they had to come to us because they couldn't get the DJs. So we would book the DJs, we would fly them out to Japan, and we would send a case load of uh, Slinky stuff for them to put up in the club. And we'd send them, a, a, if, if it was a decent-sized club, we'd send out a, a tour manager with them to, to manage that night, to help them manage that night. And, you know, we were selling some of these things for eight, ten, twelve thousand pounds 
a night. So if you imagine you're doing six, seven, eight, and nine of those globally, I mean, it was an incredibly successful business concept. Um, and the Opera House was an, an amazingly successful business. And then we started doing the Bournemouth International Centre twice or three times a year, Exeter Centre, Cardiff, Brighton. You know, it so was, you ran your own events under that slinky brand. Under the slinky brand. Yeah. And um, then dance music uh, in the early 2000s started to wane. Um, and simply because some of the bigger brands like Cream and uh, Gatecrasher decided that they wanted to take that music genre down a much more progressive route, which became too serious. And the kids lost interest. Mm. And everyone then tried to pull back yeah. to the sort of more trance and happy happy sounds, and it was too late. Yeah. The audiences started to sink, and I thought, well, I'm going to sell this while I can, and I sold, I sold the brand in the early 2000s, sold the Opera House, and um, then came, I, I was moving in, uh, Tony Blair had decided on licensing reform, and I saw the writing on the wall for nightclubs with that as well, generally, because... Everybody was just going to stay in the bars, weren't they? Exactly, and that's what happened. That's when we opened Bliss Toko, yeah. um, Slam, and things like that, and we and the bars on Paul Key. And, uh, you know, we pushed forward with that, and um, that's really where, where that got to. And then the diversification came, didn't it? it well, not really. Into I mean, everyone thinks that, uh, uh, that it was a diversification, but it wasn't. I mean, my life has been harassed, I would call it, by the planning system from day one. Yeah. I mean, everything I've ever been involved in, fast food, planning problems, Edgertown uh, nightclubs, planning problems, Edgertown Tempin bowling centres, <laughs> planning issues. Yeah. I mean, I've dealt with planning as, as a byproduct of my business life right the way from start to finish. But I've been involved also. I mean, the first ever decent property deal I did was when I was 21 years old. My uh, father owned a warehouse in St. Michael's Road, or had a lease on a warehouse in St. Michael's Road, which he used to use for parking cars and coaches. And um, when I first started in, 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 uh, in, uh, in uh, fast food restaurants, what were they called? National Freight Corporation, NFC, Margaret Thatcher had sort of said, had disbanded the National Freight Corporation, which was a nationalised industry which used to move parcels about and it used to compete with the post office. And she decided it was ridiculous and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the freehold of this place came up and um, I said to my dad, I said, I think we should buy the freehold of that. And he said, no, no, what for, what for, what for? So I said to my mother, I'm going to buy the freehold. And I paid £30,000 and went to NatWest Bank Put ten thousand pound down, and they lent me twenty thousand. Bought three of this place, and I got outline planning permission for. It's still there today. A residential development of Muse Houses, and this bloke came along and said to said to me, "Oh, I'll buy that off you." And I said, "Well, that's fine." And he gave me ninety thousand pounds for it. So that was my first foray yeah, okay. into into nice turn into residential days, yeah. into residential property. So, and and from time to time, all the way through. More so commercially, yeah. Uh, commercial property yeah. dealing has been something that has always played a part in my business career. I mean, Stretton Megabowl, you know, we bought the freehold to that. We, I mean, Allied Leisure owned that. I mean, funny enough, 
we recently ran into the guy who owned who bought that and it's now a residential tower block and i think he made 15 18 million quid on it so you know res, uh, residential maybe not but commercial property has always been a part of our dna or yeah. my dna um, because of the byproduct of the businesses i've been in so when people say to me oh yeah but you're new to development i go no i'm not I said, I've had the longest apprenticeship out of anyone you know. Um, and so that's why really one of our, I think, principal strands of strength in this business is our ability and knowledge of planning. And, you know, that runs, that core runs right the way through that brand name today. Yeah. Um, because I've experienced that all the way through my life and I know exactly how to play the planning system and and maybe i don't get it always right mm. but nine out of ten times i think we do get what we want to get to it's typically where the value add is isn't exactly it? yeah there, there is money in the building and the development and the resale but actually the planning uplift on the right kind of deal yeah is where the big gains can be although made. interestingly that's changed now okay because you know the you used to if, if before everything went wrong in 2008 um you used to be able to make substantial money out of planning gains. Today, with the advent of SIL, Community Infrastructure Levy, yeah. and with the advent of higher bill costs, planning uplift is very rarely there. The real profit now, or the, the only way of making profit now, let's put it like that, is to develop it and sell it. Okay. But you've got to be good at that to, yeah. make, to make the super profits. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, I, I, I accept that used to be so, but not so much now. Yeah, we get the odd deal yeah. uh, where where we see a, a planning gain, um, but planning gains aren't as easy as they used to be. Okay, so you know, from your early twenties, continued success all the way through, exit out of our own leisure into the bars and restaurants. You know, renowned as the owner of all the decent bars and restaurants in Paul and Bournemouth at one point, Richard. You know, into more into property than perhaps you'd been before. Yeah, two thousand eight, two thousand nine comes along, and things start to unravel. Well, so what really happened? Because there's a lot that's said about Richard. There's a lot that's portrayed in the press. There's a lot of stories. So, so tell us what really happened, Richard. Well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. In uh, Christmas two thousand seven, I went to Miami, uh, which I, as, as everyone knows, I I love America and love in particular Miami and I went to America and I uh, thought I can have a month of the last two weeks of December the first two weeks of January in Miami and um, off I went and um, I was obviously in touch with the business probably I'm probably on the phone more when I'm away than when I'm here to to people because I just get bored and I remember phoning my finance director and saying at the time we were due to renew our um, overdraft facility on Ravine Lifestyle. And we'd agreed with the bank to actually um, double the facility um, some six months before, um, just because the facility wasn't really large enough in the cash flow, you could see it needed that, that sort of fill up of extra money. <laughs> and um, we had an amazing um, relationship manager who was an Australian guy uh, for Cly with, and Clydesdale Bank were our, our, our sort okay. of prime lender. 
although we were dealing with Allied Irish and NatWest and, and various others. And um, just before I left to come to go to America, uh, John, his name was, and um, he rang me up and he said to me, are you in London? And I said, why? And he said, well, I need to meet you. So I met him and we met for a coffee and he said, I've got some news I need to tell you face to face. And I said, what's that? He said, I'm leaving. I said, I thought you're commons for another 18 months. He said, well, it is. He said, but as you know, my girlfriend, she was Australian as well, hates the UK. Yeah. And she has basically said to me, either we go back or we're, we're curtains. And um, I went, oh, my God, that's really bad news. I'm really upset. And he said, don't worry. He said, I'll make sure you get handed over to someone decent. And, uh, you know, it's been really nice working with you. We got on like a house on fire. And uh, we shook hands and um, off he went. And I didn't really think any more of it. I went, I flew off to Miami. And I remember the finance director phoning me up one day. He said, Richard, he said, he said, things aren't quite right with Clydesdale and the new relationship manager. I said, well, who is the new relationship manager? He said, well, it's this, this woman. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, what, what's the problem? Well, she doesn't really understand property. She's not from a property background. And I went, well, I'm sure everything would be fine. Anyway, so if you, if another week went by and I said, what's happening with regards to the renewal of the overdraft? Well, they, don't, they won't renew it. Uh, they won't increase the amount. They've renewed it, but they haven't upped the amount. And so, as you know, we're going to need to be running into that very shortly. So I thought, well, I'm back in two weeks. We don't, we'll be fine for another four or five weeks. And I got back and I had a meeting with this person and I didn't get on with her. And uh, basically I went above her head because I knew somebody else higher up in the bank. And I said, look, this person really isn't cut out to be looking after this business. And um, things went from bad to worse and bad to worse. And they then said that um, they wanted me to have a, a personal net, net asset statement doing um, to support, because I have personal guarantees yeah. on the facility. And Mazars um, did a personal net, net asset statement for me. And um, that was in January at £38 million. And... Um, they renewed the overdraft and we carried on. Well, as 2008 rolled on, mm. of course, there was just one thing the world after was another. changing rapidly. Bearings and then Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and then uh, Nat West. And then, yeah. I mean, it was just a, a, a total uh, minefield of disasters. And we got to about May time. And Clydesdale Bank had decided to hand the account over to um, a sort of what we call an intensive care department. And I was dealing with a woman called Margaret Tate. And she was actually okay. And um, she used to come down and I used to meet her sort of every, every other week. And she said, look, she said, we have no interest whatsoever in putting you into administration. We're very happy with the way you're managing the business you just need to agree with us. You will not take any cash out of the business and that you'll work for, for nothing. And I said, Margaret, absolutely fine with that. Let's just get on, finish the developments, sell them. Now, we had a lot of equity in those developments. And in my, in my thought process, I thought, we'll probably lose 25% of what we've got. 
but they'll get their money back. We'll have 5%. We'll still have a fairly decent sum of money in the bank. Anyway, it got to July. I always remember, and I got a phone call from Margaret in July, beginning of July. She said, I've got some bad news for you, Richard. I said, what's that? She said, NAB, which is National Australian Bank, have told us that any client that's in intensive care has got to be put into administration. And I went, well, why? I said, it's going to end up costing you a fortune. She said, they are just petrified yeah. of the global Because they were market. leaving the market in the UK at that point. Exactly. They? they bought business. Yeah. Again, another mistake when I look back. Mm. Again, my finance director convinced me to do it. My bar business was with NatWest. Yeah. And I always used to keep that totally separate from my property development business. Clydesdale Bank in middle of 2007, desperate to fund the bar business, said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll fund that. And, um, but of course, you know, it'll become part of the yeah. collateral cross guarantees, which I went along with and yeah. signed the cross guarantees. So uh, when Margaret Tate said what she said, and I said, well, what are you planning on doing? She said, well, we're going to put um, Ravine Lifestyle into administration and that means that obviously the bar business is going, but you could do probably a pre-pack on the bar business. And I went, yeah, okay. Anyway, that that was bullshit. Yeah. And it, there was no pre-pack available. Deck of cards. Exactly. And so the whole thing just came down like a pack of cards. Yeah. And um, I bought uh, Jimmy's Bar on the top of Pool Hill from a private operator and he'd left in four hundred thousand pounds out of I think we paid seven fifty or eight hundred for it, and he'd left four hundred thousand pounds in a private mortgage, and um, he said to me, "I want my money," and I said, "Well, I haven't got your money." I said, "But I will repay you," and uh, he said, "Well, that's not good enough," and he said, "If you don't repay me, I'm going to make you bankrupt," and at the time, I didn't have four hundred thousand pounds, and I think that if I was to rewind the clock. And he, he hadn't have done what he did. I would he would have got his four hundred thousand pounds back, um, and I probably would never have gone personally bankrupt. Yeah. So, two thousand and eight came, November the twenty eighth, I think it was. I was made personally bankrupt. I was discharged one year later, and I was given um, an ultimatum on the day of my discharge that I either agreed to a bankruptcy restriction order or an undertaking. And an order is what a judge gives you. An undertaking is what you agree to. Yeah. I had no money to go to court. And so I signed the undertaking. And I thought, well, I'm out of this now. I can crack on. Mm. I got going, going again. I had a bankruptcy restriction undertaking, which I'd signed to. So I couldn't be a company director. Yeah. I did a deal on a property in Allenton Close, which I made £380,000 on about eight months afterwards. And I was away. Yeah, I was back off. You, your train was running again. Yeah, train was running. I sort of was consulting. I took solicitor's advice. I was doing property consultancy work and, got, and, you know, everything was going fine. And I think that, do you know what? When I look back at this, I think that because I took off so quickly afterwards... 
the general public and the general business community and people thought, it's impossible. How on earth could he possibly have got going again yeah. so quickly? And they were obviously writing letters in, and every time there was something in the Echo, there was a list of we'll that long, that. long, what a complete <laughs> effing bastard, yeah. you know, this and that, that, that. Anyway, and um, on the 21st of November 2012, yeah. and I remember that date so well, because it's my ex-wife's birthday, they... Well, they came to the front door of my house at seven o'clock in the morning. They came to Jim Beedham, who was my uh, sort of a guy I was doing work with uh, at that time. They went to Paula, my ex-wife's house, to everyone that I had a, a business involvement with, got arrested all in one go. I remember being in the cell on that day thinking, Why, what is going on? Anyway, they came to the house that morning. They searched the house. And it was it was laughable. There must have been eight or ten policemen. At the time, I just had my baby boy, Zane. He was only three months old. And I was sat on the sofa with Chantel. And um, they were all searching the house. And I said to this policeman, who I sort of knew this guy, I said, what are you doing? He said, well, we're looking for um, money. I went, well, you're not going to find any money. I said, there's some money in the bottle around the corner. <laughs> I've got a one-gallon whiskey bottle. He said, well, no, we're looking, we're looking for substantial sums of cash. And I went, well, you, I'm going to assure you, you're not going to find it. Anyway, here. they took the house to pieces. Took that house to pieces, and they didn't find a penny. Anyway, we then got taken to, take to the station, and um, I spent the whole day in the station, and I finally got interviewed at 7.30 that night. Um, by a very aggressive policeman and um, went home and didn't really think a lot more of it and um, obviously realised that, that there was something very serious going on and um, obviously spoke to a few other people and then spoke to a friend of mine who's a criminal lawyer in London he, he got involved in it and um, off we went down the yeah. the next two to three years of hell which we'll come back to just I just would like just to ask you a few questions because just around the, the bankruptcy and the feelings, you know, an individual driven by success, an individual that had created wealth, an individual that was ours, as you say yourself, you say certified at £38 million in wealth, but clearly that was paper wealth because yeah. listeners will be saying, well, what happened? So, but it was all value in well, the company. Well, it was all in, in company. I mean, like... At that stage, you know, Future 3000, because it was earning, I don't know what it was earning, about 1.4 million, 1.2, 1.4 million. You know, the 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 shareholding of that was worth six, eight million pound. Yeah. Just um, get stuck off overnight. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was all paper wealth, wasn't yeah. it? Because, I mean, it's like today, even in, you know, you know, everything that we earn goes back in mm. to new deals. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, things are starting to get easier, but... Unfortunately, in property, yeah, you can take bits out here and there. But if you're really aggressive, which which is what my manner of doing business is, yeah. and you're pushing forward, every time we take a new site, is another hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand of planning fees. Mm. So you soon get yeah, a sum you're of money reinvested in all yeah, the time. Exactly. So, but that feeling you, you talk about it, and you talked about it as you know, smart. Felt no face. different to the day I walked out of that office. When I lost future, when I lost Allied Leisure, right, 
I just took it and I thought, I don't know, I, I, I maybe I have a really strange view about life. Um, I made it once, I yeah. made it twice, why can't I make it again? Yeah. And do you know something, right? It's a really interesting... Where do you think that resilience comes from? Sorry to cut across, but that, that's... Being a... dyslexic. Right. Because as a dyslexic child, um, and I think this is why a lot of entrepreneurs who are dyslexic do so well, because through your childhood, you are persecuted, not so much these days, I think. No. But if you go back to the 60s and 70s, you're a dyslexic child. You're a little bit persecuted at school. Yeah. You're well. When I when I first got analysed as, as somebody with dyslexia, dyslexia wasn't even known about. This was in the sixties when I I got expelled from Castle Court School, and my mother took me to see a specialist, and the specialist said, "Oh, your child's a dunce." My mother said, "No, he's not." I said, "He he could do the alphabet before any other child. He could spell before any other child in his class. So that's just rubbish." Mm. Um, but in those days, in the 60s, this is what be 66, yeah. 67, you know, they didn't Just even didn't think about it. didn't comply with normality, therefore yeah, exactly. you were done. You, you either had it or you didn't have it. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that that drive comes from um, wanting to prove yourself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, being driven because you want to get on. Yeah. Uh, despite of your other problems. Challenges. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's why, if you look at all of the business leaders that are dyslexic, who are really driven people, it's because of that one fact. Yeah, that, and that resilience comes from it. Yeah. You just pick yourself up. And yeah, and I, you know, I, I, when I, I said to you, it didn't feel any different. You know, and I walked down that road that day and where they stitched me up on my, uh, uh, my company contract because yeah. I was meant to get a, a substantial sum of money from my hours leisure contract. And at the very last minute, of me leaving that room, they said, oh, one thing, um, in your contract, you were meant to get a multiple of X as severance. We won't be able to pay you that. And I went, what do you mean you won't be able to pay me that? Well, it's either that or we put the company into administration. Well, that was a blag. Yeah. Okay. When I look back, there was no way. Yeah. Now, I, that was a blag by, by the guys on the other side of the table. But at the time, I thought, hmm, if they do, if the company goes into administration, that means I've got nothing. So I'd yeah. rather take half. And so I agree to that. It's a bluff, but, isn't it? It's, it's, and you are well, that's it. right. And that's what these, these sort of people like. But when I was walking down that road that night, uh, and I just thought to myself, wow, two weeks ago I was X and now I'm Y, but I'll get it back. And how do you go back to your family at that point? Because you're saying Zay. So ended my marriage. Right, okay. You know, so yeah, it was tough. Yeah, really tough personally. Mm. Okay, so the court case. So that we move quite quickly through the story, which you know we lead into the court case. You're being charged. Was that 2012? So we didn't get charged. So the police made great play with spreading it all over the Echo. Yeah, and making as much and, and belittling as much me as much as they possibly could. Yeah, you know they they took the license from the club because they didn't want me to have money to be able to fight my case. Yeah. They did absolutely everything they could to disarm me. And they were very, very underhanded in the way that they went about things because they knew that if I was on legal aid, they would nail me to the cross. Mm. But I was determined not to be on legal aid. 
and I carried on doing my planning work and you know I got I agreed with Paula my ex-wife and my son that we would sell certain assets in the trust and then that money was used to fund my legals um, which they they hadn't they hadn't or fully understood at how we could do that yeah. and we did that and that gave it's me very understanding ex-wife yes well it didn't really hurt her in any way yeah. and I think she always knew that I'd make it back yeah and so you know that's that's really how we got to where we got to right and so we outmaneuvered the authorities really in various bits and pieces and I had other people that loaned me money I had two friends that loaned me a hundred thousand each um, my legal costs for that case with everything were nearly five hundred thousand pounds yeah now if I hadn't had that if I hadn't had that QC I wouldn't be here today talking to you I'd be in jail today right. it was only because and which is absolutely outrageous when you think about it mm. the judicial system doesn't work and the judicial system level, doesn't work it? No, and it was only because she identified certain things uh, and found certain things and thought this isn't right, and then it, and then went and looked through it that she managed to drive a coach and horses and 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 realised that the authorities, uh, particularly Dorset Police, had been let's say less than uh, honest about the way they dealt with various parts of evidence. And why do you think they did come after you and have that Because I think what you? happened, and I've often wondered about this, so they have a duty to investigate things that are in the public interest. I think there was such a magnitude of letters and bits and pieces of information finding their way into the local press and directly to them, I'm sure they must have got loads and loads of letters, that they felt that it was time to investigate Richard Carr. I also think that over the years, I had pissed them off mm. massively on more than one occasion. I mean, let me give you a little example. In 1991, I think it was, I had bought the Zigzag Nightclub and the Jester's Leisure, uh, and I wanted to create a new nightclub called the Cajun Zoo, which is there today, yeah. called Cameo. They had particularly split those two businesses into two. One went out on one street, one went out on the other street, because there was so much civil disobedience when it was the Mason Royal and the Cardinal, which you'd remember from when we were, when we were younger. Anyway, I went to the court, Allied Leisure went to court, and um, it, it ended up going to high... We got turned down, went, ended up going to high court. And I'll always, always, always remember David Barrett, who was my uh, legal director, phoned me up on the morning and said, I've just met the barrister, the police's barrister, and they want to do a deal. They'll, they, they'll back down on the case. And I said, well, that's great. Well done, David. And he said, well, there's one point, costs. I said, no, 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 no. We want costs. Mm. We'd spent about £90,000. And David Barrett went back to them and said, yes, Richard said, thank you. And they said, about costs? He said, no, you've got to pay our costs. 
And I think that really pissed them off right. properly. And things like that. And over the years, you know, we had run a coach and horses through the licensing system on more than one occasion, on, on various occasions. And, you know, but I think we ran, well, I don't think, we did run a really slick operation licensing-wise. But we used to exploit every loophole we possibly could on every possible time um, to get extra trading hours. I mean, you know, there used to be that ridiculous situation when the clocks went forward and the clocks went back that they used to make you shut. Um, you know, even if the clocks went back at two o'clock or clocks went forward at two o'clock, you weren't allowed to open till three o'clock. Mm-hmm. And I used to say, no, we're staying open till three. If the clocks go forward at two till three, why can't I stay open? <laughs> anyway, or, or the other way around. And they didn't like that. And they don't like being confronted. And, and on occasions, they'd haul us in and say, you know, you've got too much crime going on. And, and I'd say, well, show me the logs. And like, the logs used to be ridiculous. Mm. Someone chucked a bucket of water over someone or someone lost their telephone. And I said to him, I said, most people lose their telephones in nightclubs because they want to claim on the insurance to get a new phone. It's probably not even a real client. And things like that. And I think over the years... They didn't like it that I was confrontational yeah. with them. And and um, I think they just thought... This is your time, Mr This Carr. is my time, Mr Carr. And they had assumed that I didn't have any way of fighting it. Because yeah. all the other times in life, they thought, well, there's no point taking him on. He's going to hire the best barristers in the land and he's going to get round us or he's going to beat us. But on this occasion, they didn't think that. They thought that I was on my back foot, which I was. Mm. But... I'm quite tenacious. I'm seeing that through this conversation. Yes, there you go. <laughs> so, but in hindsight, do you, do you look back on it and what lessons did you Oh, I mean, learn I, I, from if, the I, if I had my life again, yeah. would I be ever have been involved in nightclubs? No. Would I have ever been involved in bars? No. Would I have been involved in temping bowling? Yes. I think that um, if I was to rerun my life, uh, Allied Leisure would never have been involved in nightclubs. Yeah. I mean, to be frank with you, it's a, the biggest pain in the ass business you could possibly ever be involved in. I mean, you're dealing with infidelity, drunk people, drugs, friends who got kicked out of your club. You, you, you're in a no-win situation. And every single week, I used to dread coming to work on a Monday morning because it would be, oh... I'd get, you know, my PA would come to me. Oh, I've had the manager of such and such a club come forward. Uh, A friend of yours came to the front door. He was drunk. He wasn't allowed in. And he said to them, they're all going to be fucking fired. I know Richard Carr, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) And, you know, like, it's the most awful business. Do you Uh, think you needed, you ended up creating a persona, though, because of that nightclub business? Absolutely. Because if you, even if you look at TV today, okay, whenever there's a criminal, let's say there's a gangster film, or a gangster show, or um, drug barons. What's the one business that they all own? Nightclubs. Mm. So as soon as you're involved in nightclubs, what happens? Even if you're a PLC, mm. you think, oh, it's gangster. Yeah. And so, I, so yes, I think it's a, a really, really weird thing. But is it that weird? Because actually, when you look at it, a lot of people who are, let's say, on the wrong side of the fence do own nightclubs. Yeah. And so, yes, if I had my time again, would I own nightclubs? No, I wouldn't. Uh, would I own bars? No, I wouldn't. Uh, would I be involved in fast food restaurants? Yes, I would. 
Would I be involved in temp and bowling? Yes, I would. Would I be a property developer? Yes, I would. I think that that uh, you've hit the nail on the head. Yes, it, 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 there are things that um, I would have done differently. Okay. So 2015, the case gets disbanded, thrown out, whatever the right terminology is. Yeah, acquitted. Acquitted. And your life can get on and return to some normality. Yes. In fact, surely you, uh, I mean, you alluded to just now, it was you know, friends and family that got raided at the same time as you got wrapped up in the case. Yeah. What was that overall impact on your life in that three-year period? Um, difficult, I would think, is, is the word I would use. Because, do you know, the funny thing is, is that when people get charged with something, because we were all charged. Um, I was charged with 42 different charges. And when people get charged and they are facing effectively prison, they sort of start to change gear in their minds and everything starts to go to self-preservation, which is fully understandable. So trying to hold together um, family with, look, this is the route we're going down. Yeah, This is the right way to do things uh, on occasions was difficult. There, my ex-business partner was a bit of a wild card in himself. I thought that perhaps he would try and um, become difficult in the, if, if we'd got to the witness box, but we had his cards marked. Um, we had a lot of evidence to... And I, because I just think everyone... And the police know this. Everyone becomes in self-preservation mode. They're only interested in themselves. They're not interested in you or the truth. They just want to keep themselves out of it. Um but we were lucky that we had, you know, we had a really good group of barristers um, all together, all sort of knew each other. And I had a, a barrister called Miranda Moore, a QC, in fact, um, who now is sort of like, you know, sort of superstar QC, um, who was sort of seen as the number one QC, so everybody else followed her. Yeah. And it all worked out you know, re relatively well. Um, I think the most traumatic time about the trial was when the first trial failed and was and we were acquitted. The because we had a what what happened because there were so many charges, the court decided to do a pre bankruptcy uh, hearing and a post bankruptcy hearing. So when the first trial collapsed, the judge said, "Well." in light of what's come about and in light of the infidelity of the police and business innovation and skills, um, or it's more so the police than them, I want all the witness statements to be re-looked at prior to the uh, next trial. And there was a two-week window. Well, I have to tell you, that two-week window was the longest two weeks of my life because I didn't know what was going to come out of it. Anyway, uh, different police force, different division of business, business innovation skills went and re-interviewed everyone that was going to be a witness and came back with a completely different set of witness statements we went to court uh, on that on the 20th of november so it was bar yeah. one day it was three years and um the judge sat there the same judge and um he said to the 
prosecuting QC. Um, have you got anything to tell the courts? He said, yes, the Crown has no charges against Mr. Carr. So the judge looked to her in a really scowling way and said, well, what are you actually suggesting? She said, all of the witnesses have been re-interviewed and unfortunately the witness statements that were originally presented do not correspond with what has now been said by all of the witnesses. And the judge said, are you telling me that all of those different people have given different statements? Yes, and some of the statements are really substantially different. And he said, fine, acquitted. End of call. End of that. There couldn't have been a sense of euphoria at the moment, is it? Because it's not like no, you it's strive the way it was, to succeed. It's a moment of just It was relief. the most bizarre feeling. Yeah. And even to this day, you would think you'd go out, get a bottle of champagne, but no, it wasn't like that feeling no. at all. Um, you've been through it was, traumatic experience. Well, it was three years of hell yeah. for everyone, not just for me, but you know, for my sister and, and her children and ex-wife and, and everyone. It was, yeah, it was, it was tough. Has it changed you as a businessman now? No. No. No, not at all. I will say the way it has changed me is I went to a business meeting with two other property developers about three years ago, probably two years ago, uh, who were keen to do a joint venture with me. And I said, well, how do we get paid? And they said, well, this is what we do. We do this, this, this. And I said, you can't do that. It's fraud. And they looked at me and said, what do you mean it's fraud? I said, that's fraud. You can't do that. They said, well, why is it fraud? And I said, well, it is fraud. I can tell you, it's fraud. So I I probably would say that um, I'm a little more cautious about that sort of thing because in everyday business life, it's very easy to commit an offence. And so, yes, I'm probably a little more cautious about that. But can you... You listen, it's a it's a tough world out there. You just got to get on with it, and um, that's what I do. So here you are. Um, I was going to say it'd be unfair to say, you know, reinventing yourself, but here you are back, pushing forward again with Fortitudo. Yeah, we talked about how you might fund it or not through listing, but what's your real ambition in this business? I just can't sit back. I can't. I just one of these people that. Um, I have to be busy and I have to be moving things forward. I mean, you know, I often lie in bed and think, you know, why do I really need this? You know, I could probably work on for myself and and uh, do one or two developments. I was going to say, sure, it's the nightclub example where you can own 20 nightclubs and have the infrastructure for, or you can own one and you'll yeah. probably make the most, isn't it? The I, same I, I, enjoy, I enjoy the uh, mental challenge of running a business and, you know, just doing a couple of developments a year, it all gets a bit boring for me. I have to be mentally challenged. And um, I think, you know, intellectual sort of problems and games of chess, I find, you know, really interesting and, 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 and what drives me. It's not really the money, although it's important to me because I've got young children um, I enjoy having a nice car, but money isn't that isn't the driver. Has that it's changed the, during the last forty years? Do you think at one point money was the driver? No, I don't think so. It's I think I think, I think it's always been. It always comes back to that that common denominator of being dyslexic. Yeah. 
So it's the game, the drive. It's the ability to being able to... I mean, there's that old saying, isn't there? Baking a cake is often better than eating it. And, you know, that's something I enjoy baking... The, the, the cake and that building building a brand and building a business to me is really the thing that drives me and you know we have you know in, in, in this business particularly and particularly in this era that we're now in forget the COVID thing just the amount of red tape that there is around this business I mean my partner Chantel says to me some mornings what are you doing today and I said, the same as I did yesterday. She said, well, what did you do yesterday? I said, I walked through a minefield. And she looks at me as if, what do you mean by that? And I said, being a property developer, that is what life is like. Yeah. Because there are so many different facets to this business and so many different things that can affect you so dramatically and so quickly uh, that it is intellectually challenging. And I enjoy that. And that's what drives me. Is it the adrenaline of risk as well, do you think? Yeah, perhaps. And so I was going to touch on the power boating. Clearly, mm. you know, career outside of business in power boating, lots of success yeah. and championships. You know, that's that's an adrenaline field. No, well, the power boat racing goes back to a childhood thing. Um, okay. When I was at Ravenscroft School, when I was seven, eight, there was a guy called Philip Morris, whose father was in the Round Britain power boat race. And that's where I first got an interest in powerboat racing. And I used to collect scraps. And of course, then most powerboat racing in, in this country happens here, or the, certainly the bigger races yeah. used to happen here on the South Coast. There used to be the Needles Trophy and the Cows yeah. Talking Cows. And they were two of the most coveted races worldwide. And, you know, every every summer, all the Italians used to come. I remember going to, again with my parents as a kid, Paul going Key. to Paul Key. There you go. Seeing the boats and I, I always thought, one day I'm going to do that. Yeah. And... Uh, and that's really what drove me into that. And I, and I and like all my friends, we were all into boats. And, um, you know, I look back now at it and I just think, wow, you know, it was great fun at the time, but wouldn't mind to have all that money back. <laughs> <laughs> See, the money is important at heart. Well, it's, it's a lot of money. You know, I could have a super yacht of what that cost. <laughs> um, we touched on it as well. As we start to round up, it would be a miss of me not, to sort of comment on, you know, any mention of you, even now, in local media, the Echo, or, or whatever it may be, the comments is switched on, and there'll just be, you know, comment after comment after comment after comment of negativity about you from people that perhaps, you know, like me, before we've sat down today, don't know you, Richard. So that negativity, that kind of naysayers, what does, how does that actually make you feel? Because um, you are vilified in, in that yeah, way. I mean, still. I, 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 I uh, it's an interesting one. I mean, it, it doesn't really bother me uh, because I'm particularly thick-skinned. Yeah. Um, it bothers my girlfriend massively, and it obviously bothers me now that I have a son who's eight. Yeah. Uh, and children that are growing up. So that 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 does concern me because I don't want them to be bullied in any way. Yeah. Um. How does it make me feel generally? I think that this is, I mean, I, I, I've had three cycles in my life. So three cycles of virtually losing everything. Second cycle, actually losing everything. Um, and 
sort of now after you know the situation with the police and everything mm. I see this is sort of like the third cycle so a lot of people who make money um, make it and think they sell their business and think oh that was lucky and they've got their money and they probably wouldn't be able to do it again and I think that a lot of people don't like it that I think particularly in this area there's a lot of people who have inherited wealth mm. uh, particularly people that fathers were particularly successful handed it down to them they've run the business they've done okay but they've kept their money and they've kept a, a, a fairly yeah. mediocre lifestyle I'm sort of like a bit odd to them because they think wow well that's the end of him he'll never come back mm. he's done now he's, he's finished and then when they see you come out, they think, well, how's that possible? How does he do it? Well, what they forget is on Saturdays, I'm sat in that room beavering away. Um, I am on my phone at five in the morning, some mornings, some mornings at three in the morning, sending out emails to people. And I do have a really, really strong work ethic and I'm on it all the time. You know, I don't ever stop thinking about work. So I'm always analysing everything and predicting what the problems are that are coming so I can react to them before they arrive. So I'd like to think that I'm very proactive, not reactive, yeah. in the way that I run the business. You know, I'm very concerned, for example, at the moment about this issue about a further close down. Um, and I've even today written to my local MP saying of why it should not and cannot happen. Um, yeah, I believe it's right to shut certain parts of the country down for certain periods of time. You cannot just close the whole economy again. It will be a disaster. You know that as well I as absolutely I do. Agree with you. But I'm sort of analysing about what effects that could have on this business um, because I don't want another 2008 situation on my hands. Um, so, but going back to the point you make is that people only look skin deep at what and how much and how hard, you know, I work. I, th I don't know if this is true. I think, um, was it Isaac? Uh, one of the, one of the, I think it was Einstein said, um, something like, um, 20% of its brain power, 80% of its hard work or something like that. And I think if someone said to me or asked me, what is the key to success? And it is quite simply, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. And, you know, that is the truth about life. It's all about tenacity and keep on going. Yeah. And when you get knocked down, get back up and get back up and get back up. And at some stage down that path, you will get to where you want to get to. Yeah. And that is why I think a lot of people just hate that. Yeah. Uh, they hate the fact that, you know, it's push, push, push and, and, and moving things forward. Because a lot of people just haven't got that energy. And, you know, they would see me rolling up the road in my car and think, well, how is it possible? Mm. Well, I'll tell you how it's possible. It's bloody hard work. And I suppose when you come down to it, you say what you think as well, don't you, Richard? I think... Yes, and I think I mean take that development down the road there, which we're just finishing. 
you know, that's 22 one-bedroom flats and a co-op. Well, we went against policy on the one-bedroom flats because there's no parking. Yeah. And we persuaded, or I persuaded, the committee to run with it. Um, everyone there said, oh, you'll never get a PLC covenant in there. We got a PLC covenant in there, i.e. co-op. Yeah. And like, it, that is the thing I like. Is it comes like, back to the challenge again, doesn't exactly. it? And doing the things that people say yeah. that you can't do. Yeah. Okay. So, I hope you don't mind me saying you're into your 60s now, Richard. Just. Yeah. <laughs> um, but have a young family. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously with a work ethic and a drive and here on Saturdays, is there an off switch? How do you balance Richard the businessman and Richard oh, the family man? Well, I've been lectured about that this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is no off switch. I mean, I am what I am. And, uh, you know, I think that um, one of the good things about life is you have to realise who you are. Hmm. And I can't. I'm not one of those people that can switch off. I don't really enjoy being switched off. Um you know, I look out today and I think, what a beautiful day it is. But I also enjoy doing what I'm doing. So I I, I love my children. I love spending time with them. But I also love my work. So um, and at the end of the day, they're going to benefit from this, not me. Yeah, brilliant. Richard, it has been great just to talk to you about your story, your journey. Thank you. And get an inside track into some of the things that over the years have been reported. So... Thank you for being a guest on the Evolve to Succeed no, uh, podcast. Thank you. If people want to find out more about you and in particular Fortitudo, where can they go? Well, they can email me if they wish. So it's uh, rc at fortitudoproperty.com. Brilliant. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure. Thank you. I thought that was a fascinating and revealing conversation about the demands, challenges and skill required to take on a number of different businesses and make them successful. There is no doubt that Richard is an audacious character and it is that tenacity and determination to always do things his way that has proven to both be the key to its success and as he himself admits, sometimes his own downfall. Richard has lived a life of big risk, excess and at times controversy. He's made mistakes and misjudgments and divided opinion but these factors have sometimes overshadowed some of his remarkable business successes. Having heard his story, I believe you always have to respect his resilience and eye for opportunity. He has been knocked down several times, but has always been determined to get back up again and go back to what he clearly loves doing, which is being in business. Like him or not, there's a good lesson there for us all. If you want to know more about Evolve, then please do go to evolvemembers.com where you'll get further insights, content, details of our webinars, details of how you can join one of our peer groups or be coached by one of our coaches, and also details for those of you that are local of our co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If so, please do rate, review and subscribe to future episodes. And I look forward to you joining me again soon. Thank you.